This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful, beneficial, empowering. Hello and thanks for joining the program. Among my favourite Charles Dickens characters, and I think he must be the favourite of many readers, is Joe Gargery, the blacksmith in Great Expectations. A great giant of a man who routinely hammers iron into submission, Joe is nevertheless gentleness itself when dealing with other people. But when the grown pip comes into his fortune and moves to London as a young gentleman about town, he's ashamed of the unpolished Joe when the blacksmith dressed in very unaccustomed finery, visits him in the city. As Dickens writes, Let me confess exactly with what feelings I looked forward to Joe's coming. Not with pleasure, though I was bound to him by so many ties. No, with considerable disturbance, some mortification, and a keen sense of incongruity. If I could have kept him away by paying money, I certainly would have paid money. My greatest reassurance was that he was coming to Barnard's Inn, not to Hammersmith, and consequently would not fall in Bentley Drummle's way. I had little objection to his being seen by Herbert or his father, for both of whom I had respect, but had the sharpest sensitiveness as to his being seen by Drummle, whom I held in contempt. So, throughout life, our worst weaknesses and meannesses are usually committed for the sake of the people whom we most despise. And then he goes on, as the time approached, I should have liked to run away. But the avenger, by which he means his servant Pepper, pursuant to orders, was in the hall, and presently I heard Joe on the staircase. I knew it was Joe by his clumsy manner of coming upstairs, his state boots being always too big for him, and by the time it took him to read the names on the other floors in the course of his ascent. When at last he stopped outside our door, I could hear his finger tracing over the painted letters of my name, and I afterwards distinctly heard him breathing in at the keyhole. Finally, he gave a faint single rap, and Pepper announced, Mr. Gargery. I thought he would never have done wiping his feet, and that I must have gone out to lift him off the mat. But at last he came in. Now, of course, the meeting is awkward for both of them, Joe's hands nervously playing with his bird's nest with eggs in it of a hat and rolling his eyes round and round the room and round and round the flowered pattern of Pip's dressing gown. But it is to Joe's credit that the scene comes to an end with simple and very moving words that even Pip cannot resist. Please excuse me for not reading in the vernacular as I'm not much good at accents. Pip, dear old chap, life is made of ever so many partings welded together as I may say, and one man's a blacksmith, and one's a whitesmith, and one's a goldsmith, and one's a coppersmith. Divisions among such must come, and must be met as they come. If there's been any fault at all today, it's mine. 
You and me is not two figures to be together in London, nor yet anywheres else but what is private and benign and understood among friends. It ain't that I'm proud, but that I want to be right, as you shall never see me no more in these clothes. I'm wrong in these clothes. I'm wrong out of the forge, the kitchen, or off the marshes. You won't find half so much fault in me if you think of me in my forge dress, with my hammer in my hand, or even my pipe. You won't find half so much fault in me if, supposing as you should ever wish to see me, you come and put your head in at the forge window and see Joe the blacksmith, there at the old anvil and the old burnt apron sticking to the old work. I'm awful dull, but I hope I've beat out something nigh the rights of this at last. And so, God bless you, dear old Pip, old chap, God bless you. I had not been mistaken in my fancy that there was a simple dignity in him, says Pip. The fashion of his dress could no more come in its way when he spoke these words than it could come in its way in heaven. He touched me gently on the forehead and went out. Then, to further the point, much later in the novel when Pip is seriously ill and seriously in debt, Dickens writes this, That I had a fever and was avoided, that I suffered greatly, that I often lost my reason, that the time seemed interminable, that I confounded impossible existences with my own identity, that I was a brick in the house wall, and yet entreating to be released from the giddy place where the builders had set me, that I was a steel beam of a vast engine, clashing and whirling over a gulf, and yet that I implored in my own person to have the engine stopped, and my part in it hammered off, that I passed through these phases of disease I know of in my own remembrance, and did in some sort know at the time, that I sometimes struggled with real people in the belief that they were murderers, and that I would all at once comprehend that they meant to do me good, and would then sink exhausted in their arms and suffer them to lay me down, I also knew at the time. But above all, I knew that there was a constant tendency in all these people, who, when I was very ill, would present all kinds of extraordinary transformations of the human face, and would be much dilated in size. Above all, I say, I knew that there was an extraordinary tendency in all these people, sooner or later, to settle down into the likeness of Joe. After I'd turned the worst point of my illness, I began to notice that while all the other features changed, this one consistent feature did not change. Whoever came about me still settled down into Joe. I opened my eyes in the night, and I saw in the great chair at the bedside, Joe. I opened my eyes in the day, and sitting on the window seat, smoking his pipe in the shaded open window, still I saw Joe. I asked for cooling drink, and the dear hand that gave it to me was Joe's. I sank back on my pillow after drinking, and the face that looked so hopefully and tenderly upon me was the face of Joe. At last one day I took courage and said, Is it Joe? And the dear old home voice answered, Which it air, old chap? Oh, Joe, you break my heart. Look angry at me, Joe. Strike me, Joe. Tell me of my ingratitude. Don't be so good to me. For Joe had actually laid his head down on the pillow at my side and put his arm around my neck in his joy that I knew him. Which dear old pip, old chap, said Joe, you and me was ever friends, and when you're well enough to go out for a ride, what larks? Even later, 
when Pip was near full recovery, and, assuming Joan knew nothing of his situation, had determined to tell him everything, this happens. When I got up in the morning, refreshed and stronger yet, I was full of my resolution to tell Joe all, without delay. I would tell him before breakfast. I would dress at once and go to his room and surprise him, for it was the first day I'd been up early. I went to his room, and he was not there. Not only was he not there, but his box was gone. I hurried then to the breakfast table, and on it found a letter. These were its brief contents. Not wishful to intrude, I have departed, for you are well again, dear Pip, and will do better without Joe. Ever the best of friends. Enclosed in the letter was a receipt for the debt and costs on which I had been arrested. Down to that moment I had vainly supposed that my creditor had withdrawn or suspended proceedings until I should be quite recovered. I had never dreamed of Joe's having paid the money, but Joe had paid it, and the receipt was in his name. Now you may wonder why I'm spending this much time on a couple of characters from a Dickens novel, but it struck me while thinking about the end of last week's program how close Joe Gargery naturally comes to acting like a bodhisattva and how easily Pip is a picture of us ordinary mortals. It doesn't matter what arrogant mischief Pip gets up to. You get the sense that Joe is always in the background, ready to come forward to help with loving kindness and gentleness. Even in clothes he must wear with extreme discomfort. As far as you can describe a fictional character as having life, Joe is perhaps a kind of living example of the selflessness someone on the Bodhisattva path aspires to, even though he, of course, knows nothing of working towards enlightenment. The Guardian's film critic, Tim Roby, describes Joe as a distant bedrock of compassion through all Pip's vicissitudes, not to mention an oasis of stoic forbearance when it comes to the volcanic temper of Mrs. Joe. He goes on to write that if you finish great expectations without caring for Joe quite deeply, pop in a thermometer. You may need defrosting. Charles Dickens and Lama Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Guluk tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, may seem very odd bedfellows when I remind you that we are going through Tsongkhapa's The Three Principal Aspects of the Path. This short text on the path to enlightenment focuses on renunciation, bodhicitta, and the correct view of reality. And I introduced the program with Joe Gargery and his quasi-bodhisattva attitude because we have been lately talking about the second of the three, bodhicitta. That is the mind a bodhisattva cultivates, the mind that wishes to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all living beings in whatever way they need, like Joe for Pip. Those who have been following the series of programs will know that we are looking at the benefits of developing bodhicitta as described in the commentary by the highly experienced teacher and nun Tupton Chodron. However, we are now nearly halfway through the program and I haven't yet considered our motivation, so let's do that now. As we are talking about bodhicitta, that is the best motivation to have, so if you can, please direct any positive energy from the program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. If you really can't consider all beings, at least think of your own liberation and enlightenment and motivate for that. Thank you. And now back to Tupton Chodron. In the last couple of programs, 
we covered seven benefits of developing bodhicitta, as described in the graduated path texts. Very briefly, there are that bodhicitta is the gateway to the Mahayana tradition, and once you have it, you'll be known as a child of the Buddha. That's two. Then those with bodhicitta surpass in brilliancy arhats and become an object of highest respect and offering. So that's four. The fifth is that someone with bodhicitta easily completes the collection of positive potential and insight. And the sixth is that obstacles from our negative karma are very quickly eliminated. Finally, last time we finished with the seventh, that whatever we wished for, in general, will come about. The point being that when we are a bodhisattva, we no longer wish for sex and drugs and rock and roll, fame, fortune and all the things that make worldly beings slaver. Now we look to make other beings happy, protected and joyful. And when we do that, Tupson Children claims, our own happiness just comes automatically knocking at the door. So we've already gone through those seven benefits of developing bodhicitta, and now we come to the eighth, that bodhicitta prevents and overcomes harms and interferences. To illustrate, Tipton Children quotes the famous story of Devadatta and the rogue elephant Nalagiri. Devadatta was the very jealous cousin or half-brother of the Buddha, who tried on a number of occasions to discredit and even destroy the Buddha. On one occasion, he persuaded the keepers of an elephant known for its bad temper and destructive behavior to let it loose when the Buddha was approaching on his arms round. The elephant, Nalagiri, charged at the Buddha, who unperturbed sat in the middle of the road and meditated on loving-kindness and compassion. So powerful was his meditation that when the elephant reached him, it became quiet and knelt down in homage before the Buddha. If Devadatta and the Buddha lived now, then Devadatta would have done a terrorist attack instead, or dropped a bomb or something like that, says Tibson Children. That is the scope of sending out a wild elephant in ancient India. The wild elephant comes charging towards the Buddha, and the Buddha is sitting there meditating on love. The elephant is charging towards the Buddha and then falls on its knees, so the story goes, and bows to the Buddha because the power of the Buddha's love subdued him. We can see that very often in different situations in life how the power of love prevents damage to ourselves. In Asian cultures, they very often believe in spirits and spirit harm. One of the best recommendations for that is meditating on love and compassion for the spirit who is harming you. So, whenever you feel somebody, or if there's some negative energy around you, or you feel that some other person is trying to harm you, try doing some meditation on love and compassion, wishing that person well, wishing them to be free of suffering. See how that influences the situation. Very often, just the power of thought. Thought is so powerful. And this recalls another story in the Buddha's life, which I have quoted before when some monks meditating in the forest were plagued by interferences by non-human entities. When they went to the Buddha and asked him what they should do, he recited a sutta and advised them to meditate on it. The sutta was the Karuna Metta Sutta, or the Sutta on Loving-Kindness. The monks went away and did as the Buddha advised, and very soon the interferences stopped. Not so long ago on the internet, I came across a TV program about families in America were preparing for what appears to them the inevitable breakdown of society. They are building their own personal fortresses and storehouses in the hills 
which they intend to live in and defend as vigorously as they can against the ravening hordes that will be roaming the countryside. It struck me how utterly futile their efforts were. Not only were they taking very little notice how short life is and how fragile, but they ignore the fact that building strong, compassionate communities will be the best protection in difficult times. Preparing for Mad Max-type situations just promotes the conflict of me against you and ultimately me against the entire world and may even create the environment for the conflicts to happen. As Tripton Children says, Have you ever noticed that when somebody is terrified of something, very often what they are terrified of happens because the power of their terror attracts it? You go into a room and you're afraid that nobody's going to like you. And sure enough, nobody likes you. Why? Because you're going in there all set for nobody to like you. So you make them not like you because you're uptight, you're not friendly, and you don't smile. Of course they're not going to like you. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. When the mind is relaxed and not afraid about whether other people like us or not, we go into the room, we act totally different, and everybody likes us. When we have fear, the fear very often makes what we are afraid of happen because the fear changes our actions. I'm not saying that it is all the time that our fear makes what we are afraid of happen. Lots of times we are afraid of things and they never happen. But in some of these things, the fear influences how we act, influences what we do, and influences what we receive in return. There we can see how our own mind can bring things about. Tipton Children claims that Bodhicitta prevents and overcomes this and other harms and interferences. She uses her own situation as an example. At the time of her teaching, she had just moved to the town of Boys in Idaho in the States. Idaho, it seems, has, or at that time had, a certain unsavory reputation, much brought about by having been the chosen roosting place of the white supremacist group Aryan Nation, founded by one Richard Butler. And the archives of the Boys Weekly newspaper have an article about a racially charged, hate-focused concert, Hammerfest, that took place in Boys in 2012. Though I had to laugh when the article ended with a line, In between profanities and photographs from the event on the group's Facebook page, one person wrote that the concert was about as threatening as a sorority sleepover, especially as the organizing group, another white supremacy outfit, was described by the Anti-Defamation League as the most violent and best organized neo-Nazi skinhead group in the United States. In any case, Tipton Children found that Boys, Idaho, does not, after all the hype, live up to its image. She says, Idaho has a certain reputation in the country. It's interesting because I grew up in California. California has its own separate reputation in the country. In the course of being here, I've met so many people who are the total opposite of the stereotype that I came to Idaho with. Not only the people in the Buddhist group, but a couple of days ago I went down to Minuteman Press because we're printing the brochure for Sarasta Abbey. I had to choose the colors for the brochure for the guy in Seattle who's doing it. So I went down there and just started talking to the lady who works in there. You know, this is just downtown Idaho. It turns out her daughter has been to Dharamsala. The conversation ends with her saying, 
good luck on establishing your abbey. If I'd gone in thinking, all these people from Idaho are like that, what's the guy's name that's in charge of the Aryan nation? If I'd gone into that shop with everybody is like Richard Butler, I would never have had that conversation with that lady. I would never have started talking with her. We were talking, and then I said to her, I bet you're wondering what I am. She said, yes. I said, yes, a lot of people wonder what I am. I'm a Buddhist nun and a student of the Dalai Lama. And that's when it came out that her daughter had been to Dharamsala. But if I'd been uptight, I would never have started chatting with her. I know by now people look at me and they all wonder, what are you? So you just take the words out of their mouth. The attitude we go into a situation with influences how we perceive it. And so I'm meeting all these people, and like I say, they don't fit my stereotype. I went to the Holocaust Remembrance at the Capitol, and again it's like, wow, here are all these people remembering the Holocaust. They don't fit the stereotype of Idaho. His Holiness the Dalai Lama also teaches that a compassionate attitude eliminates harms and interferences. And remember that compassion is the very foundation of bodhicitta. His Holiness writes, We should begin by removing the greatest hindrances to compassion, anger and hatred. As we all know, these are extremely powerful emotions and they can overwhelm our entire mind. Nevertheless, they can be controlled. If, however, they are not, these negative emotions will plague us, no extra effort on their part, and impede our quest for the happiness of a loving mind. So as a start, it's useful to investigate whether or not anger is of value. Sometimes, when we are discouraged by a difficult situation, anger does seem helpful, appearing to bring with it more energy, confidence and determination. Here, though, we must examine our mental state carefully. While it is true that anger brings extra energy, if we explore the nature of this energy, we discover that it's blind. We cannot be sure whether its results will be positive or negative. This is because anger eclipses the best part of our brain, its rationality. So the energy of anger is almost always unreliable. It can cause an immense amount of destructive, unfortunate behavior. Moreover, if anger increases to the extreme, one becomes like a mad person, acting in ways that are as damaging to oneself as they are to others. It is possible, however, to develop an equally forceful but far more controlled energy with which to handle difficult situations. This controlled energy comes not only from a compassionate attitude, from, but also from reason and patience. These are the most powerful antidotes to anger. Unfortunately, many people misjudge these qualities as signs of weakness. I believe the opposite to be true, that they are the true signs of inner strength. Compassion is by nature gentle, peaceful and soft, but it is very powerful. It is those who easily lose their patience who are insecure and unstable. Thus, to me, the arousal of anger is a direct sign of weakness. So when a problem first arises, try to remain humble and maintain a sincere attitude and be concerned that the outcome is fair. Of course, others may try to take advantage of you, and if your, your remaining detached only encourages unjust aggression, adopt a strong stand. This, however, should be done with compassion, and if it is necessary to express your views and take strong countermeasures, do so without anger or ill intent. You should realize 
that even though your opponents appear to be harming you, in the end their destructive activity will damage only themselves. In order to check your own selfish impulse to retaliate, you should recall your desire to practice compassion and assume responsibility for helping prevent the other person from suffering the consequences of his or her acts. Thus, because the measures you employ have been calmly chosen, they will be more effective, more accurate and more forceful. Retaliation based on the blind energy of anger seldom hits the target. I must emphasize again that merely thinking that compassion and reason and patience are good will not be enough to develop them. We must wait for difficulties to arise and then attempt to practice them. And who creates such opportunities? Not our friends, of course, but our enemies. They are the ones who give us the most trouble. So if we truly wish to learn, we should consider enemies to be our best teacher. For a person who cherishes compassion and love, the practice of tolerance is essential, and for that an enemy is indispensable. So we should feel grateful to our enemies, for it is they who can best help us develop a tranquil mind. And it is often the case in both personal and public life that with a change in circumstances, enemies become friends. So anger and hatred are always harmful, and unless we train our minds and work to reduce their negative force, they will continue to disturb us and disrupt our attempts to develop a kind mind. Anger and hatred are our real enemies. These are the forces we most need to confront and defeat, not the temporary enemies who appear intermittently throughout life. Of course, it's natural and right that we all want friends. I often joke that if you really want to be selfish, you should be very altruistic. You should take good care of others, be concerned for their welfare, help them, serve them, make more friends, make more smiles. The result? When you yourself need help, you find plenty of helpers. If, on the other hand, you, ne you neglect the happiness of others, in the long term, you will be the loser. And is friendship produced through quarrels and anger, jealousy and intense competitiveness? I do not think so. Only affection brings us genuine close friends. In today's materialistic society, if you have money and power, you seem to have many friends. But they are not friends of yours. They are the friends of your money and power. When you lose your wealth and influence, you will find it very difficult to track these people down. The trouble is that when things in the world go well for us, we become confident that we can manage by ourselves and we feel we do not need friends. But as our status and health decline, we quickly realize how wrong we were. That is the moment when we learn who is really helpful and who is completely useless. So to prepare for that moment, to make genuine friends who will help us when the need arises, we ourselves must cultivate altruism. Though sometimes people laugh when I say it, I myself always want more friends. I love smiles. Because of this, I have the problem of knowing how to make more friends and how to get more smiles, in particular genuine smiles. For there are many kinds of smile, such as sarcastic, artificial or diplomatic smiles. Many smiles produce no feeling of satisfaction and sometimes they can even create suspicion or fear, can't they? But a genuine smile really gives us a feeling of freshness and is, I believe, unique to human beings. If these are the smiles we want, then we ourselves must create the reasons for them to appear. That's His Holiness the Dalai Lama. 
And perhaps we can see in Joe Gargri and Pip what he's really talking about. So that's something to ponder on as we go our ways, because now time is up and we must say goodbye. Please dedicate any positive potential from the program today to the enlightenment of all beings. And thank you so much for being with me. I hope you'll tune in again next week. Until then, goodbye. Thanks for listening to this Free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support Free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.